At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Do you know the story of Narcissus? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm talking literally about the guy narcissist. I know that that word narcissism is a pretty popular and, and, uh, and widely used word in our culture today. It's a, a widely used term, but it comes from the story or the name of a certain individual, at least in Greek mythology, named Narcissus. Uh, the story goes that Narcissus was a remarkably handsome and good-looking individual. Uh, he was just, he was... He was dripping with good lookingness. I mean, he was just great. So good looking that everybody was absolutely attracted to him and enamored with him. But he repelled all advances. I mean, he, he did not give himself romantically to anyone until one day. He was walking along a path headed who knows where, and he came alongside a crystal pool. And as he saw that crystal pool, he realized he was thirsty and saw that the water looked clear and uh, refreshing and able to quench his thirst. And so he stopped by that pool and he, he reached down in with his hand to, to bring up a cup of water. And as he, as he looked down into the pool, he recognized there was a, an incredibly handsome, amazingly beautiful person staring back at him from that pool. He was mesmerized with what he saw. He was, he was transfixed by the beauty and glory of the person that he was looking at. He couldn't look away. In fact, Narcissus began to realize and he began to see that that beauty was so great that he should never take his eyes off of it. You and I are smart, right? We know that Narcissus is looking at a reflection of himself in that pool. Narcissus, no, he's not so smart. He's seeing this beautiful, amazing person. He's like, I can't take my eyes off them. And so he makes a decision in that moment. He will stare longingly into the eyes of the person looking back at him from that pool until his life is done. He will not be moved. And so he doesn't move. He stares into his own eyes until he dies of starvation, staring at the image of himself. And friends, that is where we get the term narcissist for today, right? It makes complete sense. It's a person who has got an excessive degree of self-esteem, self-involvement, and self-importance. Just a, a person that is just completely fixated on themselves and thinking that they are the most important, most beautiful, wonderful, amazing person in the entire universe. Now, I don't know anybody who would claim to be a narcissist. In fact, I think that's kind of the bit of going along with being a narcissist is that you won't acknowledge that you're actually one. But the reality is, I think, at least if I know me, but I think if I know us all well enough, 
I believe that there's a form of narcissism that sits in every one of our hearts. Each and every one of us can be at times and in ways absolutely fixated on our own importance, our own value, our own beauty, our own glory. And we can become people that are consumed with ourselves and with the image of ourselves in this world. I don't think it's unfair to say there's a narcissist in every single one of us. My question is, is there a way out of our narcissism for us? Is there a hope that you and I could be different people who don't spend our lives looking at our own image only to die sad, alone, and self-consumed? Is there a way for you and I to be restored and healed of our own self-importance, of our own narcissism? Daniel 4, uh, this passage we're in this morning, is the story of a textbook case of narcissism. In fact, I actually think that narcissism should be called Nebuchadnezzarism because I think Nebuchadnezzar started it all, right? His is the real story. And yet it's a story about how God rescued him from an inflated view of his own self, how God rescued him from himself. The narcissist of Nebuchadnezzar in particular introduces us to himself at the beginning of this story in verses one through three. This is fascinating to me here in the scriptures. Uh, Scriptures are read and and stated this way, King Nebuchadnezzar. So there we just got to stop and recognize this is part of Holy Scripture that is written by a pagan Babylonian king. I mean, let that just kind of blow your mind about how the Holy Spirit can work. The Holy Spirit inspires a pagan foreign king to write Scripture, to, to speak the words of God So we better pay attention and listen. King Nebuchadnezzar is writing this and he says, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Friends, he is writing to you and me. One narcissist to another saying, let's talk about what's going on in your heart. It's amazing. Here's what he says. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. He reflects and he says, like, God has liberated me and freed me from my own narcissism. He's done signs and wonders that he has done for me. How great are his signs. How how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. Here this chief of all narcissists is able to say to you and me to this morning, through Holy Scripture, God the Most High has done incredible things for me. And because he is the king of kings, because he is the one whose kingdom is forever, I as a recovering narcissist can speak to you who are sunk in your own narcissism today. I think this is such good news for us. God let him out of his own self-importance and out of his own narcissism. So Nebuchadnezzar tells this story, this is a little autobiography of his life, to help us see how God leads us to humility. And in fact, the question I, I think that Nebuchadnezzar asks and, and wants to show us this morning is, how does God break us of our own self-importance? How does God lead us out of our own narcissism and our own view of ourself, our own pride, so that we're people who recognize who is the greatest and live under his dominion and kingdom? Well, Nebuchadnezzar shows three things this morning. First of all, he shows us that God, to break us of our own pride and self-importance, to lead us out of our narcissism, God warns us of our pride. 
He warns us of our pride. Oftentimes, we need warnings to clue us into the danger that, that threatens our lives. And at the same time, it's not often that we heed those warnings, right? Yet they still come. They're there. And yet, for us in our own pride and narcissism, God warns us. Now, this is true in the case of Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 4. Verses 1 through 27 set up the entire drama and conflict of the chapter. But, but they're, they're easy to summarize and to just kind of get a 30,000-foot view of. Nebuchadnezzar is the narrator in this particular chapter, as I, as I said earlier. And he tells us in verses 4 and 5, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So again, we're, we're meeting Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the second time we're reading that he has had a strange dream. He's there in his palace. He's like, everything is great. I'm wealthy. I'm prominent. I'm at ease. Peace in my kingdom. I'm just living fat on the land and just enjoying myself. And he says, and yet I have this troubling nightmare. These strange dreams, as I lay awake at night, I have these visions in my head and these fancies he calls them, they're just there. And I can't explain them, I can't deal with them. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar does what the king who has strange dreams would normally do. We remember this back in Daniel chapter 2, right? He summons all of his, uh, his Babylonian wise men, his interpreters. These are the guys that he has, he has trained in the arts of magic and uh, dream interpretation and all that so that they can be there for this very moment. Unlike chapter 2, where he does not tell them the dream itself or its interpretation, this time around he's maybe feeling a little bit more generous, and he says, let me tell you guys the dream. Let me, let me share with you what's been going on in my head, and you guys then tell me the interpretation. So he says, all the magicians, the enchanters, is verse 7, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but get this, they could not make known to me its interpretation. Once again, these professional dream interpreters turn out to be completely incompetent at the task, right? Like, you guys have one job, interpret dreams, and they can't get it. They have no clue what's going on. So what does he do? Nebuchadnezzar summons in Daniel, verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me. But here in this text, he uses Daniel's uh, Babylonian name, Belshazzar. He who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. He says, I brought him in and I told him the dream. Now, I think it's interesting here that Nebuchadnezzar notes something important about Daniel. He, he summons Daniel and he says, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. He recognizes that Daniel has spiritual gifting. He's got spiritual enablement. Even though he doesn't rightly attribute to the Lord God, that Daniel has been successful before and that these dreams or these interpretations have come from the Most High. Yet he knows Daniel is probably the one to answer his problem. He'll do well this time around. So he brings in Daniel and in verses 10 through 18, he tells Daniel the dream. He says, here's what happened. He says, basically, I saw this massive tree this huge, bigger than any tree I've ever seen before. It's a glorious tree and it's a strong tree and it reached to the heavens visible in the whole earth. It was in full flower. Its leaves were beautiful. There was fruit on it for all. All the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, they came and, and received nourishment and refreshment from that tree. I mean, it was just the best tree in the world. Everybody was cared for from that tree. And then, he said, the dream gets a little weird because I, I hear this angel. I, I see this, he calls him a, a watcher. 
this holy one coming down from heaven. And he, and he starts sharing this message or proclaiming the story. And, and what the angel says from heaven is, chop down the tree, cut down limb from limb, strip the leaves from the tree, destroy the fruit. I mean, make the tree a complete stump and put a band of iron around it and bronze and, and just leave it alone. Just leave it there in the midst of the field. Like, just wreck out that tree. And then the angel turns from talking about a tree to begins talking about the tree as a person. And he says in verse 16, let him hang out with the beast in the grass. Let him have the mind of an animal. And, and let there be seven periods of time that go by. Now Daniel hears this vision, right? This is Nebuchadnezzar sharing the dream that he's had. He shares it with Daniel. Ne Daniel hears this vision and all of a sudden he's terrified himself. He, he's nervous. In verse 19, it says Daniel was dismayed for a while. and His thoughts alarmed him. And the king's like, no, no, don't worry about it. Just tell me the dream. Tell me what, what the interpretation is. And Daniel even says, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies in verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar thinks, enough of that, Daniel. Tell me what the dream means. So Daniel says this to him. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. The great big tree that refreshes everybody in the whole world that's seen as high as heaven, that it encompasses everything. That's you. It's you, O king, verse 22, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominions to the end of the earth. And Daniel says, this angel who says, come down and chop down the tree, well, that's a decree from God that's come down upon you. You're going to get chopped down is what he's saying, verse 25. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. But the kingdom will be returned to you when you know that heaven rules. What Daniel is doing here is he's giving Nebuchadnezzar a warning. He's saying, you're this tree, and you're the one that's going to get chopped down, and God's judgment's going to fall on you. So he warns Nebuchadnezzar, verse 27. He says, in light of all of this, this dream, here's what you need to do. Humble yourself. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel essentially says, Nebuchadnezzar, today, Repent. Like, like, become a person of integrity. Be a man of righteousness, of doing right by other people. Be a person that's not consumed with yourself, but be a person who's consumed with showing compassion and mercy, even to the downtrodden and to the oppressed and to others. Daniel just lays out a warning for him. If you think about it, this dream and its interpretation, as Daniel expresses it, they're, they're like the dashboard warning lights in our vehicles. Think about it. You get, you've got your car, you're driving down the road, and one of those lights flickers on. And they, they may tell you something like, you know, hey, you've got to deal with some stuff. The oil is getting old, or, or perhaps your engine needs a tune-up, or check your brakes, or, or it's time to get some air in those tires, right? Those dashboard warning lights are important there. While they may be super annoying, they easily help us to diagnose and to deal with the issues in our vehicles, but like Daniel's warning, oftentimes we can be like my friend who whenever those dashboard warning lights pop up, he pulls out of his glove box a picture of his family and just puts it over the light. That way he doesn't have to see it. He doesn't have to acknowledge it or deal with it. Friends, are there warning lights in your life about your own pride and about your own narcissism that are, that are showing up right now that you're not dealing with? Let me point out a few, uh, I think, important 
dashboard lights that were in Nebuchadnezzar's case and help you see how they are the same for us today. Maybe these dashboard lights are on for you as well. I think about the first one is that Nebuchadnezzar was at ease. This is his own words. He was at ease and prospering in his palace. And yet he couldn't sleep at night because of the possibility of losing it all. These dreams just racked his sleep. They unsettled him. Is that you? Like you're at ease, you're prospering. And maybe you don't have the palace like Nebuchadnezzar did, but like things are pretty good for your life right now. You're, You're stable, you're steady, and yet you can't sleep at night because you're fearful of losing everything. Like the smallest thing could upset your equilibrium. It could disrupt your tranquility. Friend, that's a warning light that there is pride in your life because you have it all and yet you're, you're, you're never confident with it. You're never secure enough. It's never enough. And because you can't sleep, it's just you're always in tension. There's a warning light there. Maybe another warning light is that you... You're told people struggle to tell you hard things in your life because they're fearful of your response towards them and rejection of them, right? Like Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar. He's brought in and he gets the dream and the interpretation and he tries to deflect it. He's fearful of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is so powerful, so full of pride that Daniel's like, I don't wanna tell him a hard thing about himself. I don't wanna help him out. Like let this be on his enemies. Let somebody else deal with that. Is that you? Like, you don't have close relationships with other people who will tell you the truth because they won't, you won't hear it from them. Your fury is so great that you cancel people right away. You reject and push away anybody who would say, hey, brother, sister, I love you, but there's, there's something wrong here. That's a sign of pride when you won't hear from others who love and care about you truth to help you grow and be more like Christ. It's a warning light. Is that that going off? Is that blinking on your dashboard right now? It's God's warning to you. Here's the third one, right? Nebuchadnezzar heard God's word. This dream, its interpretation, they are coming from God's prophet, Daniel. They're coming from angels as well. Like God is speaking directly to Nebuchadnezzar about his life. And And he's giving Nebuchadnezzar a chance, an opportunity here to correct his course and to change. But Nebuchadnezzar hears God's word and does nothing with it. And that's a warning light on our dashboards. He, Nebuchadnezzar gets God's word, but nothing happens. Months go by, a year goes by. That's what it says in verse 28, or verse 29, at the end of 12 months. Like, all this time goes by, and he doesn't change. Friends, is that you? Like, you hear God's word, you sit under the teaching of it here on Sunday mornings. Maybe you read the Bible throughout the week in your own life. You listen to podcasts or, or check out YouTube videos from other Christian leaders and thinkers, but there's no change going on. You're just accumulating Bible stuff, but not being changed by the living word of God. That's just a a dashboard warning light in your life that you're proud, that you're self-consumed. I don't need to change. I don't have anything wrong with me. Yeah, I'm just religious. If you're hearing God's word, but not changed by it, it's demonstrating your pride. So I'd ask you again, are any of these dashboard lights blinking or on? In your life right now, God gives you grace to repent, to humble yourself, to heed the warning because he wants to break us of our own narcissism. This is, this is the first way that Nebuchadnezzar points to us that God warns us of our pride. That's how he helps us, brings us to humility. But the second way is this, 
God will judge us for our sins. Here's how God God humbles us. He judges us for our sins. Notice verse 28 here. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Not one word of God was lacking. Not one word from God to Nebuchadnezzar failed or missed. All of this came upon him. It happened. The dream came true. Notice here verse 29 states even the, the, the when and the how of it, the condition of it. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Let me just, just point out that time frame again. A year goes by in which God has warned him and given him space to repent. A whole year. The dream comes. Daniel's warning comes. Like God is intensely patient. He's like, hey, let's, let's just let's give him some space. To, to begin to change, begin to make modifications, to, to think about this warning and this message and, and to love people and to serve them and to, to humble himself. Like God isn't hasty, he's, he's full of patience, long-suffering. He backs off for a year to allow Nebuchadnezzar to change and Nebuchadnezzar has nothing to do with it. Friends, what is God being super patient with you about in your own life, but you're refusing to deal with and to hear from him? What could that be? A year goes by. Nebuchadnezzar, he's out. He's surveying his amazing city and his kingdom. He's walking the roof of the royal palace. And, and this is what he's saying to himself. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my might and my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. I mean, he's just looking around thinking he's the greatest in all the universe. I built this city for the glory of my majesty. That's a textbook narcissist, right? Now, now, just to be fair to Nebuchadnezzar here for just a little bit, right? We have to think about what he's done because it is impressive for sure. The Babylonian Empire at this point in human history is the greatest empire in the world. Nebuchadnezzar would have been the ruler over most of the world's known people at that time. His kingdom the biggest. He is the highest in authority over all the people of the world. And the city of Babylon itself had been radically transformed. It used to be this kind of urban, ruinous city that was defeated and conquered, and it was built up and then raised down again time and time after. So it wasn't really a great place, uh, so to speak. But yet, when Nebuchadnezzar became the king, he started doing some incredible city renovation. I mean, he started making that place shine. It was his palace city. Uh, it became one of the crown jewels of all cities in the world. Proportionally to the known world, Babylon became bigger than what New York City would have been today and far more beautiful than even New York City is in its own right. The story goes that Nebuchadnezzar's wife, who came from a mountainous region with, with streams and forests and, and beautiful valleys and lush life, she hated living in the urban center. And so Nebuchadnezzar built his city to look like this mountainous, uh, mountainous beautiful area with lots of green uh, life and rivers or streams running through the city. Maybe you've heard of Babylon's hanging gardens, Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens, which were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He built his city to look like a beautiful, lush paradise. It was radiant. So you can understand a little bit of his pride here as he looks out over the city that he's built. He's made something stunning and truly glorious, and yet he was completely self-focused about his position in it all. Right, let me go to his statement again in verse 30. The king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, like it's the best of all cities, which I have built. 
by my might, my power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty, my power, my glory, my majesty. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar has no sense of getting there except by his own means, except by himself. He envisions the world and his life as a result of his ingenuity, his creativity, his might, his strength, his wealth, all of that. Yet he's missing something. Right? He was taught the lesson back in chapter 2. This is Daniel 2.21. God is the one who rules over all. And he removes kings and he sets up kings as he wills. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is the all-sovereign one who has gotten himself there, pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, accomplished everything, and he is missing the reality that God is the one who set him there. God is the one who did it for him. God is the one who placed him. And the truth of Scripture, of the Lord God, friends, is that he will not share glory with anyone. So his judgment falls on Nebuchadnezzar. The dreams come true. Look at verse 31. Well, the words were still in the king's mouth. So so now we've got a different, like Nebuchadnezzar is all of a sudden not writing. It's a third-person narrator, perhaps Daniel, who's talking about what happens. He says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, this is the point, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately, verse 33 says, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He he goes mad. He loses his mind. Some have speculated that this is a mental illness called boanthropy, where a person actually believes that they are cattle, that they're an ox or a cow or something like that. God judges Nebuchadnezzar in order to humble him so that he would recognize who the true and right king is. He's he's run out of the kingdom, driven from among men, just as God said he would. He eats grass, his body would wipe with the dew. Like he is just, he's run off. The length of time that's stated in verse 32 is is interesting. Until seven periods of time shall pass. We don't know exactly how long that was. It could have been seven years could have been an undiscriminate amount of time. But the clear case of God judging Nebuchadnezzar is here. He's dealing with his pride. And he's humbling him so that Nebuchadnezzar will lift up his eyes and recognize the most high rules the kingdom of men. He's the one who gives it to whom he will. The truth is that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. He will humble the proud. Isaiah in Isaiah 2.12 speaks of the future coming day of the Lord, that future day when Christ returns. And Isaiah says, And for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Now here's the question. Like, am, am I saying to you that God will afflict you like he did Nebuchadnezzar with boanthropy uh, if you don't humble yourself to his sovereign glory and power? Will God run you out into the fields of southeast Michigan like an ox? No, I'm not saying that'll happen to you. I'm saying it'll be worse. For everyone who exalts themselves against God, lifts themselves up in their own pride and narcissism, Scripture says they will be cast down. Everyone who lifts themselves against God will be 
absolutely humiliated. The point is we will all be humiliated. We will all be humbled. The question I have and the opportunity that God gives us is to choose it on our own terms. We can humble ourselves today with joy, experiencing his grace, giving God his due glory and honor him in our lives today. And the judgment that we deserve will have already been meted out. That judgment that we deserve will have already been bestowed and placed on Christ who died in our place on the cross for our sins. Or the day is coming where we can stand in our pride and the day is coming when we will be humbled when Christ comes again. And the scripture says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. We will experience God's judgment that day. So the question is, will we, will we take the judgment of God being given and thrown on Christ for our pride, or will we stand in our pride awaiting God's judgment on that final day? We deserve death because we're rebels. We're narcissists. We think that we are God and the most important in the entire world. But if we humble ourselves and repent and come to Christ, all our pride and rebellion and narcissism is forgiven truth is that Jesus stood in our place, he went to the cross, and he took God's judgment on himself for our pride. He paid the death penalty for all who will be humble and turn to him. So friends, this is the invitation here. Will you be humbled? Will you come to God in, in humility and trust Christ? Will it be now by God's grace? Or will the day of the Lord be a day of justice for you? God works to humble us, strip away our narcissism by warning us of our sin, but also judging us for our pride if we will not. But then finally, he restores us by his grace. We might think this is the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story, just run off into the wilderness, thinking he's a cow, acting in insane ways, and that's it. Verse 34 brings us back. After this period of time goes on, Nebuchadnezzar finally seems to get the lesson says there, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, so now he's in his right mind again. I love how the literature here just creatively brings us back to Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Notice what he says here. I lifted my eyes to heaven. Here's where pride is reversed. Here's where this introspective, self-consuming, self-enamored narcissism is defeated. See, for Nebuchadnezzar, up until then, there was no heaven from his perspective, right? He was the one who built the kingdom. He was the one who had all the glory. He was the one who stood at the pinnacle of it all. He was heaven unto himself. But then God brought him low. He humbled him. He brought him to the very bottom of himself, utterly humiliated. And when he gets when he gets it in his mind that there is a God in heaven who is the king of all kings, when he comes to the end of himself, he looks up. He extends his gaze to God and he recognizes who the true king is. And grace came to him. As he realized his pride, as he looked to heaven and looked to God, God gave him what he didn't deserve. He says, my reason was restored to me. So no longer thinking like he's a cow, but now he can bless and praise God and worship him. And that's what he does. Notice what he declares about who God is here. 
He just rightly gets everything ordered in his life. God is the one whose kingdom is eternal. He states this, kingdoms come, kingdoms go. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Which, by the way, that might be a note for us to consider when we think about how deep our passions and our energies go to kingdoms and countries of this world. Like, they're just all of them. They're all footnotes to God's eternal, glorious kingdom. So friends, are we really gonna devote ourselves and all of our passions and energies and anger and fury to a leader who gets four to eight years, maybe? Nebuchadnezzar says God's kingdom is forever. He's the eternal king. And he does whatever he wants in the world. Like, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Every one of them. He does, God does, according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, not one, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is ultimate, unhindered, unbridled sovereignty. God the Most High is king. He rules and reigns over everything. And there's not one human being in the entire world that can accuse God of wrongdoing or foolishness or question his wisdom and righteousness and say, you messed up. God said, Nebuchadnezzar says, God reigns absolutely. He is the ultimate king. And so here he is, Nebuchadnezzar, recognizing his place in the world in light of who God is. And he's like, there's no comparison. My kingdom, it's a drop in the bucket. God's kingdom, eternal and forever. His reign and rule, like I, people can thwart my will, but no one can thwart God's will. No one can stay his hand. I think that's what makes pride so silly. Friends, let's think about it. Like, do we have unlimited power and might? Like, has everyone, anyone ever had somebody, like, not do what you told them to do? If you're a parent, let's just say yes. <laughs> Will our little empires and kingdoms endure forever? Not a chance. So why do we pretend to be the most preeminent person in all the universe? Why are we all little narcissists that think that we're it? We're kings of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it. And he turns his eyes to God. And how does God respond? With grace. With grace. He bestows on Nebuchadnezzar what he doesn't deserve at all. He says in verse 36, At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Like Nebuchadnezzar has to learn the hard way and God blesses him with greater reach and influence and kingdom. He blesses him with grace, restoring the kingdom and majesty it held to him. He reigned. But I don't want us to see that's being the ultimate end of Nebuchadnezzar's humility. Grace does not turn into a means for us just to elevate ourselves once again. Like God didn't show Nebuchadnezzar grace so Nebuchadnezzar could stand on the palace uh, ceiling again or the roof and go, hey, look, all this stuff I built, it's so great. Aren't I great? No, God shows grace so that we worship him, so that we acknowledge who he is in the universe. Nebuchadnezzar turns to us in verse 37, and he speaks directly to each one of us here in this room. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I mean, notice this here. This pagan king, 
This king who is thought he is the most important in all the world, he is humbled, and so he can say, now listen, God has shown me grace, and I worship him. I praise him. I honor him as the king of heaven. He is the most glorious, the most mighty, the most powerful one in all the universe. I mean, here's the turn. Nebuchadnezzar lost it all, but God showed grace and restored him, not just as king, but as a king who worshiped and honored him above all kings, who worshiped God as the king of heaven. In Japan, there's a type of artwork called kintsugi, I think is how you say it. It's a pottery-based type of artwork where a piece of pottery, like a bowl or a vase or something like that, it's been broken. There's cracks, or maybe it's just been significantly shattered into pieces. What an artist does is take those pieces and they reassemble that, that pottery. But they don't just use you know, normal clay or whatever the material was that the pot or bowl or vase was used originally. They take a special lacquer that is uh, coated with gold dust or silver or platinum. And they, they fuse those cracks together with that gold lacquer so that the, the pottery, when it's all assembled and, and repaired, is something of greater value, something of greater beauty than it was to begin with. God's judgment for us, friends, is the hammer. He means to break us of our pride and self-reliance, but God's grace is the golden lacquer that puts us back together again and gives us a greater purpose, a greater beauty, a greater restoration and value to honor him with all of our lives. I think when we look at Nebuchadnezzar's life, he's challenging us to humble ourselves. That's what he says at the end of this passage here in verse 37. I now praise and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right, his ways are just. And he's speaking to us here, he says, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. So what Nebuchadnezzar is asking you and me is, are we gonna continue to walk in pride? Are we gonna continue to be narcissists? Because God is able to humble you. His challenge to us is to humble ourselves. Those who walk in pride should know God is able to humble you, and he will. So the big idea here is to humble yourself before the true king. To, to be a person that stops living the narcissistic game of our own splendor and power and beauty, and to humble ourselves to Christ. Jesus says he looks to those who are humble. He repairs and heals those who are broken. He smiles with grace on those who are weak and needy. He responds and looks to those who tremble in humility at him and his word. Will your story be known as a story of narcissism? Self-enamored, gazing at yourself, dying sad, lonely, and alone? Or will your story be the story of humility? Maybe of being broken by God, but being restored by his grace so that you worship and adore and serve his purposes in all your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of this passage that, that speaks to us. You're speaking to us today, calling us to humble ourselves. And so, Lord, may we be people who humble ourselves today, who bow the knee, who repent of our narcissism, who see those, those warning lights and say, Lord, be merciful to us. May to you be the glory and the honor, the power and the majesty 
for all ages. May we not lift up ourselves as if we're great and mighty and beautiful above you, but may we humble ourselves. May you be worshiped as a King of kings and the Lord of lords, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.